0: We have the great pleasure of hearing from Dr. Bruce Ware today. Uh, Dr. Ware has taught in a variety of contexts for 35 years and is currently a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I had the great pleasure of sitting under Dr. Ware's teaching as a student there and was regularly convicted and challenged both by the consent as well as the passion with which he spoke. And so it is a great pleasure to have him here today. Dr. Ware has authored a number of books, including God's Greater Glory, God's Lesser Glory, And one book that is particularly relevant to his subject this morning um, is that on the Trinity called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Relationships, Roles, and Relevance. A book I highly recommend to all of you, as not only does it help you think through, practically, uh, a very challenging doctrine, but again, think through what it means to us today and its importance. Dr. Ware and his wife Jody have been married for 42 years. They have. uh, Is that right, 42 years? Okay, good. We got the last one wrong, so I need to make sure. Uh, he and his wife have been married for 42 years. They have two daughters and three grandchildren, and it is, again, a great pleasure to have him come, so Dr. Ware, if you would come forward. Thank you.
1: Thanks, man. Well, what a joy to be here with you again. I was here with you in 2015. It, it seems like a blink uh, since since I was with you, but... You know, it's a similar situation, look, looking for a pastor, and so you, you pull in who you can find, you know, so here, here I am, and uh, it's a joy to be able to, to unfold the word to you, and we're just grateful for the ministry of this church in this area, and uh, pray that God would continue to bless you and bring, bring to you uh, a wonderful pastor. Uh, I've been praying for that since Dave Anderson told me about this and uh, it 's important to have the right person, so we pray that the lord would would provide that for you and uh, continue to expand the ministry of your church well it's uh, it 's a pleasure for me this morning to unpack a bit about who God is. If you were here in two thousand and fifteen, I did two messages then on God I mean this is my my main subject that I have studied and thought most about and and uh, preached on over the years really our attributes of God or in this case the Trinity and so it's a delight to do that let's just have a, a word of prayer real quickly before we begin father as we come together now and open your word we do pray that your spirit would direct all of us to hear your word rightly and and see in it that this is your self revelation you are revealing to us who you are and may we see the glory and the wonder and the beauty and the radiance and through that as well the mercy the kindness uh, the compassion that you have for us as the triune God help us to understand better what it means that you are one God who is Father Son and Spirit and we will give you great praise and uh, Thanksgiving for that we pray in Christ's name Amen I don't know if you have the handout for the, the message I'm not quite sure if that was distributed or not you do Okay, so if you have that, you you might want to pull it out. I I mentioned by way of introduction this this question. Have you learned to read your Bibles through Trinitarian lenses, right, sort of like glasses you put on, which uh, enable you to see indicators of the Trinitarian persons as you read the New Testament in particular? It's just amazing to me. I mean, this happened to me many years ago. It was while I was teaching, though. I mean, I, I had already finished school and, and was in, uh, in a teaching position when, through Ephesians chapter 1, <laughs> the Lord used to open my eyes to begin to see what, what was for me an entirely new way of understanding who God is, and that is through understanding the distinctive Trinitarian persons that Paul spoke of. You know, Paul, when he speaks of God in, in, the, uh, in his letters, in fact, this is true for the whole New Testament. When you come across God, it's most often God the Father. Uh, sometimes it's God the Son. Uh, John 1:1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. But, uh, but most of the references are to God the Father. So if, if you look at uh, what is being said Of God, it rarely is the one God who is overall, the triune God. Most of the references, including divine pronouns, you know, the he's, the him's, and the his's, as they relate to God, are, are references to one or another Trinitarian person. Ah, this he, this him, this his is the father or it's the son or whatever the case might be. And you'll see that this morning as we look at Ephesians 1. And this has just opened up a world to me that I have so enjoyed and and relished over many years now of being able to see more clearly the distinctive markers of the Trinitarian persons as, as you read the Bible. Well, we'll see that this morning in Ephesians 1. Really, the sermon is very simple in structure. I'm going to begin by looking at verses 1 and 2 with you at at what I call the contours of the structure of the Trinity, where Paul indicates just in the way that he thinks of the father-son relationship, how that relationship indicates the contours of Trinitarian doctrine. And then we're going to take a look at verses 3 to 14 that outline for us really the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in our salvation. And Paul very, very carefully delineates uh, what each one contributes in a kind of a summary fashion in in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. I I think it would be good, though, (coughs) excuse me, for us to read uh, the the, the section first before we uh, begin diving into it so we have it in mind. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 1, and let's read verses 1 to 14. I'll be reading from the New American Standard translation. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's begin with verses 1 and 2 where we see something of the Trinitarian structure just in the way that Paul speaks of the Father and the Son. So, he begins in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So, notice that he's an apostle of Christ, not by the will of Christ, right, but by the will of God. Now, who is God? Is this the one triune God? Well, I don't think so because if you look on, you just… Uh, The next phrase in verse 1, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, Uh, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he understands God as shorthand for God the Father. So here he says he's an apostle of Christ by the will of God the Father. So what it indicates here is that there's a distinction between Father and Son, They are two distinct persons. So if you think in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity, you might think of it as a giant block doctrine that has to be upheld by two pillars, two supports for the doctrine of the Trinity. If either one of them is lacking, the whole doctrine collapses. And that first pillar that upholds the doctrine of the Trinity is the distinction pillar, distinction, where Father... Son and Spirit are distinct persons. The Father is the Father, not the Son. The Son is the Son, not the Spirit. So, indeed, three of them uh, comprise the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And here you see that in the way Paul speaks of himself as an apostle of Christ. That is, sent to represent Christ, sent to advance the mission of Christ, sent to proclaim the gospel of Christ. But who is it who commissioned him to do this? The Father, the Father did by the will of the Father, he says. And by the way, there's one other uh, indicator here in verse 1 that we'll see much more in a bit, and that is the ultimate authority that the Father has over all things, including the sending of the Son, the commissioning of Paul the Apostle to represent Christ, the ultimate authority that the Father has in all things that take place. We'll see more on that in just a bit. So, Uh, Verse 1, we see then this this distinction pillar that upholds the Trinity. Now, look at verse 2 with me. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and, and, (laughs) it's an important word, the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of that word and is incredible, right? Because on the one hand, it also indicates distinction, Right, So grace and peace to you from, from on the first hand, from God the Father, and on the second hand, from the Lord Jesus Christ. So distinction is still there. But what, what else does the word and do? It indicates the equality that the Son has with the Father. Who alone can give grace and peace? Only God can give that. So grace and peace to you from God our Father and The Lord Jesus Christ, indicating that the Lord Jesus Christ is equally God. So the second pillar that upholds the doctrine of the Trinity that has to be there is the equality pillar. Father, Son, and Spirit, though they're distinct persons, are equally the one same God. And the, the equality that exists among the Trinitarian persons is the strongest kind of equality that there is. Now, you and I are equal to each other, But the way in which we are equal is because we each have the same kind of nature. You have a human nature, I have a human nature, and so we're equal, all right? But in the Trinity, it's stronger than that. It's not only that the Father, Son, and Spirit have the same kind of nature. Rather, the Father, Son, and Spirit possess the identically same nature. There is one God, hence one nature of God, What's nature? Well, it is the collection, as it were, of all of the essential attributes of God. God's holiness, His goodness, His righteousness, His knowledge, His wisdom, His power, all of the essential attributes of God comprise the nature of God, and that one nature is possessed fully by the Father, fully by the Son, fully by the Spirit. You you see? So indeed, they are equal in the strongest way you can be equal. I, I call it an equality of identity because they share the identically same nature fully. So here you have really the two pillars of the Trinity that are depicted for us in just this introduction to the book of Ephesians, how you see the way Paul thinks of the Father and Son. On the one hand, they're distinct from each other. Father is Father, not Son. Son is Son, not Father. And yet, Father and Son are equally the one God. And of course, Spirit could be brought into that as well, although it's not mentioned, the Spirit is not mentioned here, but He will be in a, in a bit So, indeed, marvel, marvel at the the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, where you have one God who is three persons, and those three persons equally possess the the full divine nature. I remember uh, when I was teaching this to my two girls when they were little, uh, you know, the Lord led me. I'm so glad he did this because I I didn't think of it. (laughs) The Lord brought it to my mind to teach theology to my two girls at their bedside, as they were growing up. So, for about 10 years, I went through systematic theology. It's what I do for a living, you know. So, I, I got it all up here anyway, right? So, uh, I, I just… Um you know, would, would get down on my knees by their bedside and walk them through doctrines of the Christian faith. It took about 10 years to do that. I, we would start with a passage of scripture and just kind of develop a little bit and call it quits for the night and pick up there tomorrow. And, you know, so anyway, when I was doing the Trinity with them, I, you know, tough, tough for anybody to get, but particularly children. And I just prayed. I said, Lord, if if there is some illustration for the Trinity that I'm not aware of, uh, could you help me know it? Because anyone I knew of was a good illustration of one heresy or another, uh, but not not a great illustration of the Trinity. So so I I just prayed. I left it with the Lord. And and a couple nights later, I woke up at about 3 a.m. with this idea in mind. I, I went and grabbed a piece of paper, wrote it down so I wouldn't forget. So, I think God gave this to me. But if… if so, if it's, if it's true, if this illustration works, the Lord gave it to me. If I find out in heaven it doesn't work, I've shared it many, many times, I'm so sorry. What, what, what can I say? It's my fault. But anyway, here, here's the illustration. Imagine if you had uh, uh, three colored markers and you took the first one, say a blue marker, and drew a big circle on a whiteboard. So, you have on the board one circle encompassed by a blue line now you take a a green marker and overlap the blue Exactly and draw on the board a, a green circle that overlaps the blue one Exactly and then you take a red marker and overlap the other two exactly draw a red Circle on the board overlapping the green and the blue exactly now notice you have one circle on the board the green circle is the red circle the red circle is the blue circle right but but you have three distinct lines the red line is not the blue line the blue line is not the green line so something like that is what we have with the doctrine of the trinity one nature of god that is the collection of all the essential attributes of god and the father possesses that nature fully the son possesses that nature fully the spirit possesses that nature fully but the father is a distinct personal expression of that one undivided divine nature. The Son, a distinct personal expression of that one undivided divine nature, and likewise the Spirit. So, indeed, one God expressed personally through the three persons of the Father, Son, and Spirit. John 1.1, I mentioned it to you just a moment ago. Think of these two pillars of the Trinity that are uh, articulated in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the two of them are with each other, so, distinction, right? You have the Word and you have God who are with each other, distinction, and the Word was God, equality. Do you see it? So, indeed, both of those have to be in place for us to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, All right, let's move forward now to verses 3 to 14 and take a look at how the Father, Son, and Spirit work to bring about our salvation as summarized in this passage. So we begin with the Father. As we look through this, we see evidence that the Father indeed is the grand architect of salvation the grand architect of salvation, the designer, the one who planned and purposed what would take place, comes from the Father. And verse 3 begins right there. Paul begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, certainly Paul could have begun this letter in a different way that would speak of the one God in the fullness of the Trinity, he could have said, blessed be God who brings to us all the blessings that we receive. True enough, but not precise enough, evidently, for the Apostle Paul. So instead of saying, blessed be God, he says specifically, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So notice that every blessing is designed by the Father. It comes ultimately from Him. He's the one who has planned, purposed, uh, designed every blessing that we receive in this life and in the life to come, which just staggers the mind, because you realize the outpouring of those blessings will never end for all of eternity. It's incredible. If we knew now the lavishness of what the Father has prepared for us, we would be embarrassed to have so much love and kindness planned for us. It's incredible. So the Father has designed every blessing that we receive in this life and in the life to come, and all of them secured through the work of His Son. You see it? in Christ Jesus. So, indeed, it's in Christ that all these blessings are realized. They're accomplished in the work of Christ. Now, I think the Spirit is also implied in verse 3. Notice he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Right? So, the question comes up, what does Paul mean by spiritual blessing? Here's one option. Could it mean, could he mean that, he has in mind blessings that come from the Father that are spiritual in nature as opposed to physical blessings. You know, because those physical things don't really matter anyway, right? Like food, clothing, shelter. You know, th- those, those things aren't, aren't important anyway, Right? <laughs> I don't think that's what's in, what, what, what Paul is indicating here. That's kind of Gnostic, if you understand first century Gnosticism, to separate spiritual as what really is valuable and material things are not, even evil in some forms of Gnosticism. That's not the Bible's view, though. I mean, think of it in the Lord's Prayer. What's the first request? After you pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our... Daily bread. Pretty physical, wouldn't you say? And from whom does this come? Our Father who is in heaven, right? So indeed, I don't think it's separating spiritual and physical. I think that's a false dichotomy. Every blessing, physical included, comes from the Father. So here's what I think he is saying that is, every blessing that that is brought to us through the agency of the Spirit, spiritual blessing, Spirit wrought blessing. So designed by the Father, accomplished by the work of the Son, and mediated to us by the Spirit, who brings to us all of those blessings that the Father has designed, that the Son has accomplished. So indeed, the Father is the one from whom every blessing comes. Now, for Paul, when he thinks of the blessings that the Father has brought to us, the very first blessing that he records in Ephesians chapter 1 comes then in verse 4. Notice notice where he begins. Just as he, the Father, remember you've got to learn to read divine pronouns by looking at which Trinitarian person it is. Because almost all of them in the New Testament, almost all of the divine pronouns are one or another Trinitarian person. Just as He chose us, how do we know that's the Father? How do we know that He is the Father in verse 4? Well, it flows out of verse 3, blessed be the God and Father. That makes sense, right? So just as He, Father, you would think would be the the most logical uh, person to, to see here. But notice Just as he chose us in him. Who's the him? It's the son, clearly. In light of verse 3, all things come through the son. So just as he, the father, chose us in Christ, uh, that we should be holy and blameless before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. See, the father and the son and the spirit, but the father is holy. For us to be with him, chosen to be with him, guess what we have to be? holy and blameless. So, indeed, I, I won't take you to chapter 5 right now, but Ephesians chapter 5, the famous verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, dot to dot to, dot, verse 27, that she may be holy and blameless. Same phrase as Ephesians 1.4. So, the Father designs what we will one day be, holy and blameless. The Son secures it accomplishes it by his death on the cross. Isn't it amazing? The first thing that comes to Paul's mind when he thinks, why should God be praised? What are the blessings that he has brought to us? Answer, he chose us. The doctrine of election that is despised by many Christian people, wrongly. So, I, you know, here, here's my question to you. If we have problems with the doctrine of election, but Paul celebrates it first on his list, for why God should be praised. One of us must not be thinking about this correctly. I wonder which one that is. Hmm. So, indeed, here you have it. I mean, we would not be in the family of God. Go on to verse 5. In love, He predestined us. The Father did, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. We wouldn't be in His family had He not chosen us before the foundation of the world. This is a glorious doctrine. It accounts for the sending of the Son to pay the penalty for our sin, the working of the Spirit to bring us to faith. All of it is based upon the decision of the Father in eternity past to choose some to be His own forever and ever. So, indeed, what a glorious doctrine the doctrine of election is, as we see it here in Paul. Now, he goes on, really all that's said in in these verses, verses 3 to 14, focus on the gift of the Father, but I want you to see one in particular that's just astonishing. Look at verse 9 with me. In the NESB, the sentence division actually begins at the end of verse 8. We read this. This is another blessing from the the Father. In all wisdom and insight, He… Okay, I won't say who yet. We're going to look at these pronouns. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him. Ah, that's the telling uh, uh, pronoun, right? That's the telling pronoun. Because the in Him, clearly at the end of verse 9, is in Christ. So, who are the other He's, Him's, and His's? It's the Father, right? So, indeed, in all wisdom and insight, He, the Father, made known to us the mystery of His, the Father's will, according to His, the Father's kind intention, which He, the Father, purposed in Him, in Christ, Verse 10, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. So indeed, the Father has designed not only for a people to be His forever, but for His Son to reign supreme over all things in the end. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth, this is verse 18, all authority in heaven and earth has always been mine. Is that what he says? No. All authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Therefore, go to the nations. Well, who gave him this authority? The Father did, right? We have Ephesians 1 open, so look at the end of Ephesians 1, verse 21. Verse 21, the Father raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at his right hand, that's in verse 20, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age but the one to come. And he, the Father, put all things in subjection under his, the Son's, feet and gave him the Son as head over all things to the church. Do you see it? So, indeed, the Father is the one who designed, yes, a people, to, to be His, a bride for His Son, but ultimately for His Son to reign over everything in the end. This was the Father's design. So, indeed, He is the grand architect, the wise designer of everything that takes place in all of human history, is from the Father. Now, what about the Son? Well, if the, the, if the Father is the grand architect, the glorious accomplishment of salvation comes through the Son, the glorious accomplishment of salvation through the Son. Look down at verse 7. This is where we see the Son's work of salvation. Verse 7, in Him, in Christ, we know that's Christ, by the way, because of the last phrase of verse 6, which He, free, which he the Father, freely bestowed on us in the beloved, that's in His beloved Son. So in Him, the Son, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. So here is the work of Christ summarized here. Of course, the work of Christ is much bigger than what is stated just here. But here what Paul emphasizes is the redemption that has come through His blood. Now the word redemption, many of you know this, some of you may not know, the word redemption has in mind a purchase that takes place. A purchase. You, you redeem something. In fact, I remember my mother, you know, many many years ago, would have these books of S and H stamps. You know, I, were they blue? Seems like like they were blue, but anyway, or green. But you know, these stamps that you you and then you would go to a redemption center, redemption center, right, where you turn the books in and get a, a lamp for your table or something, right? So we we still have that idea even in our culture somewhat to redeem something is to is to purchase it. So Christ purchased us by his death on the cross. Now, the the question, of course, arises, who did he pay? Who, Who is the purchase price paid to? And we know from the book of Hebrews, it's very clear there, that the purchase price is made to God, the Father. The Father demands a payment from us, which if we pay it, we will never finish paying. This is why hell is eternal, because the payment for our sin re- would require everlasting judgment, an everlasting payment. But Christ, who is the infinite Son of God, who takes on human nature, can pay for that penalty in a way that completes it in one instance, one transaction. It's paid for fully. He, th- this is part of the reason why, the Savior has to be fully God and fully man in order to make this redemptive payment. Fully man to be one of us, to live the life we were called to live, to die the death we deserve to die, to, to, to make the payment for sin we deserve to pay. And yet, if if He were merely a man, it wouldn't work. Why? Because if He were merely a man, he and, and, and the Father... Uh, charged to him our sin, well, he would pay for our sin the same way we would. Which is what? You never quit paying, right? So what's the difference with Christ? He's fully man, but he's also fully God. And so the payment made is of infinite value and pays the penalty for all of our sin in one transaction that takes place on the cross. The resurrection certifies That payment has been accepted by the Father. So here is the redemption that takes place, that only through that, through His shed blood on the cross, do we receive forgiveness of sins. Isn't that remarkable? This is the only way. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So no, there are not many ways of salvation. There's only one. And that's through what Christ has done. Through faith in Him, we receive the forgiveness of sins. Now, some of you might wonder, you you may have always wondered this. I find this to be the case. Well, didn't God already provide a means by which sins could be forgiven through the Old Testament sacrifices? I mean, those were already in place. Weren't, Weren't those sacrifices being made by Jewish people to pay for their sin? And didn't God forgive them and justify them when those sacrifices were made? Well, the answer is yes and no, (laughs) right? It's complicated. Yes, God did command those sacrifices. Yes, he did extend to them forgiveness when those sacrifices were offered in faith. But no, those sacrifices actually paid nothing against the sin that they had committed. So what were they then? They were promissory, right, payment or promissory sacrifices that had in mind the sacrifice that would one day be made by Christ where all of the payment is made by Him. Hebrews 10 verse 4, you might make a note of it. Hebrews 10 4, the writer of the Hebrews says, "...the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin." The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, so none of those sacrifices in the Old Testament ever actually paid for anything. But what they did was provided a type, a type anti-type link. Here, here's my analogy uh, that I think is helpful. When you go to the store uh, these days, almost always you pay with a you ah, pay with a credit card. Put, put that pay in scare quotes, right? You pay with a credit card. So you hand them the credit card, you sign the little slip or the screen, and what you're doing is signing a legal obligation to make a future payment that is legally binding such that you can take that item out of the store right now though you have paid how much for it? Zero, nothing. But you take it out of the store and the the security guard doesn't stop you for stealing. Because you signed a legal document that obligates you to a future payment. Do you see it? So this is what happened in the Old Testament. Every single time a sacrifice was made, someone signed the credit card slip obligating himself to a future payment. Who was that? It was the father. The father who sent his son to be the one who would make that payment. So indeed, he extended forgiveness to them, uh, anticipating the coming of Christ by which the payment would be made. So indeed, here we have in Christ the redemption that takes place and the only place that redemption takes place. Through one, one sacrifice, one uh, uh, work on the cross accomplishes the entirety of salvation because of the Son's uh, own life as the God-man given for us. So, indeed, He is the one who redeems us through His blood and brings to us true forgiveness of sins according to the grace of the Father. So, we've looked at the, the role of the Father as the grand architect, the, the, grand accompli- the glorious accomplishment of salvation through the Son. What about the Spirit? Well, the Spirit is spoken of, as I mentioned, I think in verse 3. There's a hint there that the Spirit is the one through whom all that Christ has secured for us is then brought to us, is, is, is applied to our lives. But the Spirit comes up again in much richer terms in verses 13 and 14. So look there with me. Let me read again verses 13 and 14. In Him, that is in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. Now, notice in verse thirteen. This is just important for all of us to see. Notice that that Paul says that in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of the truth. So, people who are saved have to hear the truth of the gospel before they can be saved. And then, they, they listen to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, then they are saved. Do you see it? So, indeed, the Bible indicates that the only way that people can be saved is when they know of Christ. When they know the message of the gospel of Christ who has died and been raised, and and they believe that, they believe the gospel message, that Christ has died for their sins and been raised victorious uh, to vindicate the the efficacy of his death. And and indeed, uh, this is important for us to affirm because in our day, there is a growing number of people, uh, evangelical theologians and others, who are claiming that people can be saved apart from the knowledge of Christ, because God is in the world everywhere, right, the omnipresence of God. And if God is everywhere in the world, sure, surely His love is there, so there must be a way by which people who have never heard of Christ can actually be saved. And, and there's, a, a, you know, a, a lot of literature that has come out defending this view. The problem is, it doesn't fit the Bible. It just, just is, I mean, it's, it's a giving in to sentiments of our culture. Yeah, we would like that, wouldn't we? Yeah, you know, so- sounds better to think that people have access to saving truth just through God and creation or something like that. But the fact is the Bible does not indicate that. How, how will people be saved apart from hearing the truth? You remember Romans 10? Let me just remind you. Uh, Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord may be saved, says Paul, but how shall they call upon him? whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear unless there is a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings. So indeed, missions is essential. It is not the case that anybody will ever be saved apart from knowledge of the truth that they have to have access to. Maybe it's through a radio program. Maybe it's through a tract that has been distributed. But most often through verbal proclamation, uh, people hear the gospel and are saved. Okay, so indeed, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, so you've, you've heard the gospel, you believe, here's what happens. You were sealed in Christ with The Holy Spirit of promise. So the first thing he mentions here is a sealing that takes place. We are put into Christ. You might remember in John's gospel, the emphasis that Jesus makes in chapters 14 and following in John's gospel. I in you and you in me. Remember that? That that kind of identity in which we are united with Christ. Paul in Romans chapter 6 were united with Christ in his death and resurrection. So there is a oneness of the believer with Christ that happens the very moment that believer believes in Christ. As as soon as that man or woman puts faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit seals that person into Christ. And because the Holy Spirit, who is omnipotent God, seals them, nothing can change this. It's one of the strongest arguments for what is sometimes called eternal security. Once saved, always saved is the way it's sometimes put. And it's a glorious doctrine. It can be abused. It can lead people to think, oh, I walked an aisle, so I'm fine. And then you live like the devil. That's not what the Bible says salvation looks like. Salvation looks like ongoing faith. True saving faith is marked by ongoing faith, ongoing trust, ongoing obedience, so indeed, but, what, but if you really have genuinely put your faith in Christ, indeed you are sealed into Christ. The Holy Spirit puts you there, unites you with Christ, and nothing can separate you from that. It's a glorious thing. But then he goes on to say, not only does He seal you into Christ, verse 14, the Spirit also is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. He's the pledge of our inheritance. So, in other words, the Father gives the Spirit to us as a token of His promise. You are mine forever. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, the closest thing that we can think of in our culture context is an engagement ring. A a, a young man giving a, a young woman an engagement ring indicating the token of His promise that he will give himself to her, right? Now, of course, we know human engagements can be broken. We probably can think of some right now, you know, where that's happened. But this is Almighty God. This is God the Father who says, I give the Spirit to you as my token, my pledge of promise that you are mine, that you will receive the full inheritance that I have for you. So, indeed, the Spirit has this role of securing us in Christ, of granting to us all the riches of Christ, and bringing those to us not not only in our position in Christ, but experientially as we receive more and more of the benefits of Christ's work on the cross, seeing sin defeated, seeing transformed character take place by the work of the Spirit within us. So, what a gift the Spirit is Uh, given by the Father, given by the Son, by which we then uh, receive the confident assurance that we are His forever, and the empowerment to live lives in the way God has called us to live. So, salvation by the members of the Trinity. The architect of salvation is the Father. The accomplishment through the work of the Son, the application of that through the work of the Spirit. So one act of God, one work of God, this saving work that he does. But the saving work of God is like any work of God. It's accomplished through the persons of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There isn't a fourth person who is God over the others. There is no such thing, right? So the only God that there is is the one God who is Father and Son And Spirit, so the one work of God is always the work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit together. Well, just a couple points of application as we bring this to a close. First, marvel at the beauty of the triune God and of the salvation that he has accomplished. I think part of the application of Scripture is captured in this word, marvel. It, 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 honestly, if truths like this just stay up in our heads and don't don't reach our affections, uh, the, the, where we feel the weight of these things, something has gone wrong. Right? God intends the truth that He gives us first to enter our minds, but then from our minds to to saturate our affections, so we we indeed marvel. We're just in amazed. You know, we, we, we sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound. But do we feel the amazement of that, right? Same thing here. So, indeed, marvel. I mean, isn't, isn't our salvation rendered richer, deeper, more profound, more glorious by seeing the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit in bringing this salvation to pass? Indeed, the Trinity provides a richer lens for understanding the, the the salvation that is ours by God's grace. Secondly, consider the work of the Trinitarian persons as one of rich harmony, not simple unison. One in which there is a unity of work without sameness, and a diversity of roles without discord. Now, these are all musical terms, so I some of you may, what's unison? What what you know what, what so. Most of us get this, though. When we sing congregational singing like we did today, by the way, it was wonderful. Thank you so much for the beautiful music and the opportunity to worship with you. When we sing uh, together, uh, most people sing unison. That is the, the main line of notes, right, the melody line. That's what we do. Uh, but, but harmony is when you break into other parts of notes. But notice those notes that you break into, written by the composer, are given to enhance the melody line, right? Right? So they don't supplant the melody line. In fact, sometimes I've heard a group, maybe you have too, where you can't hear the melody line anymore. The harmony lines are so strong, you can't hear the main line anymore, and you go, hey, wait a minute, that's not good. Right? I don't like that. I want to hear the melody line also. Right? So, so the, 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 the way harmony works is by an intentional writing of different lines of notes that work together to enhance the main line, the melody line. So what do we have in the Trinity is harmony, not unison. The Father does not do do the very same thing the Son does. The Son does not do the very same thing the Spirit does, right? They each contribute their own part to this. They sing their own lines, but they do so in a way that the fullness of it is glorious, beautiful. Now, if you were to press this metaphor a tiny bit further and say, well, who, who wrote the composition? I would say the father did. Remember? All things ultimately. He's the architect of everything. The father wrote it. But who gave this, who who, who assigned the melody line? The father did to whom? To the son. The son sings the main line of notes, right? And even the father, who is the one who is in charge of this, right? Who who, who is the architect of it, puts himself in a harmony line to support what, what the son is doing. So, indeed, He wants to elevate the Son above all things. Look at my Son. Think of the transfiguration. Think of the baptism of Christ. Look at my Son. Follow Him. So, indeed, from the Father, He wants to accentuate the glory and greatness of His Son. The Spirit always working to advance Jesus. Remember in John 16... Verse 14, when the Spirit comes, he will not speak on his own initiative, but he will take of mine and disclose it to you. He will glorify me, Jesus says, of the Spirit. So, indeed, Jesus singing the melody line and the other two, the Father and the Son, supporting lines to that, designed by the Father uh, to, to be just what it is. Now, what does that have to do? Is there any practical relevance of that? Yes, we're created in the image of God, and part of part of that imaging is to image something of the Trinity. You see this in Genesis 1 where all of a sudden plurals are stated. Then God said, let us, who? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, right? Trinitarian. So indeed, something of the Trinity is to be reflected in the way we live. And here's one of them. We also in our families should seek, to see harmony, not unison. Everybody has to think exactly the same, do exactly the same, dress exactly the same. That's communism. That's not God. I've been to Romania where I've seen in Bucharest what Ceausescu, the communist dictator there, did to that city, knocked down all of the beautiful Parisian architecture, almost all of it, and built like you know st- uh, brick or uh, concrete buildings in the place of those identical buildings every one of them and you know that's communism but god loves variety in unity right in unity so it, it, so a family should not should not emphasize unison but it also should not allow discord what's discord musically well i'll give you an illustration it's three three-year-olds sitting on the same piano bench. That's discord. So it's not that. The Trinity is not that. You know, the Son saying, I'm going to do my own thing. I, you know, I'm going to do this over here. And the Spirit saying, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. I don't want to do that. I'm going to do this. No, this is not the way the Trinity works. They are in harmony. They are working, each one contributing what he does, but in a way that advances the one goal, one mission, one purpose, one work of the one God. And that should be the way it is at our homes, in our churches, right? Where where we see gifting in the body of Christ, emphasizing distinction, but all serving the purposes of growing us up in Christ. You see it? Distinction and unity together. Okay, last life application capital letter C, understand the intrinsic authority submission structure within the relations of the very Trinitarian persons themselves and embrace the relevance of this to human life made in God's image, authority and submission in relationships of husbands and wives, church leaders and church members, and other places as well. But here we have in the Trinity this beautiful reality of Father, Son, and Spirit who are equally God with the strongest kind of equality that there is, an equality of identity. Each fully God, because each possesses the one undivided divine nature fully. And yet, Father is always Father. This wasn't a flip of the coin. Uh, yeah, I'll, be, I'll be Father for a millennium, and then we'll, we'll flip the coin again and see who's going to be Father next. No, the Father is Father eternally. The Son is Son eternally. And guess what? Father, because He is Father, always acts as father doesn't take a lot to figure that out son because he's always son eternally son always acts as son so notice you never find in the bible anywhere the son sends the father and the father goes the son commands and the father obeys the the son wills and the father carries out the will of the son how is it in the bible always The Father commands, the Son obeys. The Father sends, the Son goes. The Father wills, and the Son carries out the will of the Father. Do you see it? So there is this uniform structure to the Trinity, which then gets represented in how God makes us, a husband and a wife, equal in nature, both fully human. She's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, says Adam when Eve is brought to him. She's equally human, and yet... He's head in that relationship. He has authority in that relationship as the man, the the husband to the wife. So, indeed, you see in a marriage, you see in in every instance in, in our culture of authority, submission relationships, equality of nature. We're all equally human, but distinction in roles. And what's this rooted in? The Trinity. Amazing. Amazing. So, indeed. Marvel at the, the greatness and the glory of the one God who is three. Get to know him better. Uh, learn, to, learn to spot those divine pronouns as you're reading your New Testament. And, and revel in the greatness and the glory of one God who is the Father, Son, and Spirit who brought about our glorious salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of being able to spend these moments Together in, in, a, in a realm of truth that is beyond all, uh, in anything we can fathom uh, that is so glorious, so great, so beyond us ultimately. And yet you have revealed enough that we can see some of the beauty. Help us to see more of it, Lord, as you've revealed this. And may we grow in our affection for you, our love for you, and our longing to live lives in obedience to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.